1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our message this morning will come from verse 10 down through verse 16. And before I read that portion of God's word, let's ask his blessing upon us. Now, gracious Father, we humbly come before you to ask for your blessing of enlightenment. Give us understanding. Help us, O Lord, to see these, uh, Lord, the admonition against schism. Help us to see the force of it. Help us even to create a desire from your word and spirit, a hatred for it. And so, Father, we pray that you would not only enlighten us intellectually, give us knowledge and understanding to combat anything that would rise up in this body that would be schismatic, but, Lord, that we might be wedded and dedicated to your glory and service and ministry and that you would give us hearts, O oh Lord, full of truth and compassion and love and Lord for you and one another for our brothers and sisters. So Lord, we pray that you would take this word this morning and use it to edify us, to grow this body up to maturity in Christ our head. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, I want to begin reading from verse 10. Hear now the word of the living God. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul has not, uh, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the book of Corinthians is known for many um, sins. Obviously, it's a book that uh, when immorality needs to be addressed in the church, it's a very popular book. But outside of that, the most common sin in which the book of Corinthians is used to correct is that of schism. If you look in the bulletin, you see the title of this message is The Sinfulness and Folly of Church Schisms. Well, that's my title. Your title says The Sinfulness of Schism. Now, I really wanted to convey in the title of this morning's message how great the sin of schism is, how devastating it is to the church, or the body, the local body of Christ, and wanted to take this text of Scripture 
and begin to open that up to all of us so that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and begin to insulate, train our minds, insulate our hearts from future schism so that when it comes before us, hopefully always in seed form, there's always sort of a root form of it, that we could see it identified and kill it in its root. Now, that's always important. Um, I enjoy doing my yard work. And I have learned it is much better to take out a tree when it's this big rather than when it's 50 foot tall and costs thousands of dollars to have taken out of the yard. I often walk around at various times, particularly usually on the weekends, and just begin to pluck up all of these little trees that are starting in seed form. And that is the easiest way to manage and control that infestation. It's similar in the church. It is best that we learn as God's people to identify those sins, especially those sins that tend to have a devastating effect upon the unity, the fellowship, the ministry, and the success and usefulness of the church. That we would see it in its seed form and we would address it and deal with it and be able to move beyond it and not allow it to come and have just truly a a damning effect upon the body in its fellowship. Sadly, I have to confess that I begin to survey the various churches that I know. I don't know of one that has not had schism. I don't know of one. I mean, I'm not just surveying Presbyterian churches. I'm surveying all kinds of churches, and I am familiar with the bodies, these bodies being affected negatively with schism at some point in their history. Now, the church of Corinth's not that old. It's barely five or six years old by the time Paul has to write this letter. So, so, beloved, listen, this is a common tactic of Satan to divide God's people. And by dividing God's people, other sins can run amok. Schism is a great and heinous sin in the body of Christ. Now, I want you impressed with that this morning. So what's the purpose of the sermon? Well, it is to demonstrate that schisms are very sinful, but that they, the purpose of a schism is to render the body helpless, powerless, ineffective. That the Bible tells us, and even our Lord teaches this as well, that how can two walk together lest they be in agreement with one another? How can a house stand if it's divided? It can't. We know the answer to the question. 
It's impossible for a house to remain standing when it's divided. Beloved, you can apply that to any relationship. Marriage. How can a marriage sustain itself when there's no unity, camaraderie, a fellowship? When the marriage is divided, it will fall. It will have a disastrous effect, not only upon the couple, but also upon those that are connected with the couple. So, keeping that in mind, beloved, we must see schism as contrary to the very nature and work of God himself. In the very beginning, God created man, male, and female, and he made them in his image. And the Bible tells us, and we confessed it this morning, that God created man in his own image. He created man upright, gifted, righteous, in order for man to have fellowship with God, to walk with him in unity. God created man in his own image. But what hampered what come between man and God? Sin did. And that sin didn't just, was not created in some vacuum. Satan came and in his subtlety tempted them to sin against their creator. And that truth holds true today, even in the church. We've been remade in Christ, Paul says. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things now are new to you who have come to know Jesus Christ. Have you put, as you have put your faith in him, as you've repented of your sins, as you have drawn near and close to him by the word of truth, the word of grace, to walk with him, to fellowship with him, to identify with him, to agree with him, to submit to him, to be taught of him. And all the while having your love increased more and more for him because you see how truly blessed these graces are in your life. Satan comes and he wants to interrupt that fellowship that you have with Christ, but also that fellowship that you have with one another. He comes and he wants to divide the body of Christ. He wants to render the body of Christ useless. Almost like just a mere symbol. But that's okay. We can deal with the mere symbol of it, but not the power of the ministry of the gospel. And that's why Paul brings up the power of the gospel in these first four chapters. And beloved, as we will find going forward in the book as we begin unfolding verse 10, and I don't know that I'm even going to get even far beyond verse 10. I mean, verse 10 basically sets the purpose for the first four chapters of the letter. Let me give you the outline. First in verse 10, we see the apostolic exhortation. That's what it is. Paul says, now I exhort you. Now some, well, 
versions will have, I urge you or I beseech you in the old King James. All good words, all, all unfolding the strength of this exhortation, this admonition, this, this beseeching. It's emotional. It's full of power. Paul's not making a suggestion. He's not offering advice. Paul is exhorting the Christian church there in Corinth to repent of their divisions and be united in one mind and one judgment. So we see first an exhortation. Secondly, we also see that exhortation backed not only by his apostleship, but also by the head of the church. I exhort you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul invokes the name of Christ to this matter. Now remember the first four doctrinal heads that I gave you when we opened up the book in its exhortation or its introduction. Remember we talked about sort of the apostolic nature and office um, and, and its purpose of the uh, uh, apostolic office. We talked about the office of apostle. We talked about the headship of Christ. That this sin is so destructive, it is so heinous, it is so great that Paul not only exhorts them from his office of apostle, but he also invokes the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep that in mind. Then thirdly, what do we see from verse 10? Well, we, we find that the purpose of the exhortation. Look at that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So in that one verse, we are told Who's doing the rebuking or who's doing the exhorting, the beseeching, the urging? We're told what authority that it's appealed to, that of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're given the purpose of it. That is, beloved, that's the only goal of this exhortation. Again, not being a suggestion at all is that you come to agreement with one another that there no longer be any schisms. That's the Greek word that underlies the English word divisions. Now I'll unfold that a little bit in, in just a little bit. And you may say to yourself, well, that's impossible. Well, no, it's not. It is not impossible. 
See, if I would have told you that how do sinners, how are sinners saved? And I, and, I, and I said, well, listen, this is how sinners are saved, that God would send forth his only begotten son and he would be born of a virgin and he would live a sinful, a sinless and perfect life and he would lay down his life and he would be resurrected on the third day. You say, impossible. And yet that happened. Because that's all part of the redemptive plan of God. It's all part of how the wisdom of God, Paul says, is greater than the, what? This wisdom of this world. It is possible, beloved. It is possible. And God gave, gave to each of his sons and daughters his spirit and his word and his ministry so that we would what? All be conformed and transformed and continuing to be reformed into the blessed image of Christ our Lord. It is possible. And of course, we've got to distinguish, and we will as time goes on, those differences. We're not talking about preferences. We're not talking about bringing hobbies and all those various things that make us uniquely different from one another. We're talking about the Christian ministry. We're talking about the purpose of the Christian body, where Christ is the head, and we are its members. Paul lays out a masterful series of arguments in the first four chapters, five of them, I've at least identified at least five arguments Paul will lay out as we move through these first four chapters. Each argument destroying the sin of schism, destroying it, rendering it helpless of effect in the human mind and rationale and intellect. And Paul does this by unfolding the nature and the purpose of the triune God. In each of these arguments, Paul lays out the work and ministry of Christ, his nature. Notice what he says in these first few verses. Has Christ been divided, verse 13? Now, I'm not going to touch that phrase this morning. I'm just pointing it out to you. What is Paul doing? Paul, in order to destroy the schism that had, that had gripped the body there, Paul begins to present a series of arguments that would basically admonish them and, and, and move them to abandon their schisms and call upon Christ as their head and not Paul and not Apollos and not Cephas. Can Christ be divided? Can God be divided? Is Christ schizophrenic? Does he say one thing and do another? No. Does God say one thing and do another? No. Does the Spirit say one thing and influence another? No. Then why are the Corinthians separated? Well, we're going to talk about all that over the next several weeks. Well, beloved, let's begin looking at this text and, and, and making application of it as we consider this very great sin of schism. And as I said, I can't think of a church that has not been touched 
in some way or another by the sin of schism. Well, let's look at this exhortation. Now, Paul's not in Corinth. He's not there. He's actually more than likely in Ephesus, ministering there, starting a church, building up that ministry there, establishing elders, if you will. And Paul has to lay that aside, and he has to address this schism that has taken root in Corinth. Now, I think it's important, and it could be translated this way, it's not only his exhortation, but this exhortation has a form of admonition to it, doesn't it? Because of the nature of it. Because of what's requiring this exhortation. It's not like he's exhorting a, uh, exhorting a weak Christian to just be stronger or exhorting a weak Christian to pray and to, to you know, um, uh, partake of God's strength for them. That's not, this is not the case here. This, this exhortation comes in the strength of an admonition, a rebuke. They are worthy of this admonition. Why? Because they're not being the, the, the body of Christ that they've been called to be. They were called in the name of Christ to one gospel and one faith, one truth, one baptism, one ministry. And now in just a few short years, they have broken up into various groups, each championing or competing against the other one. And that's what he says. What's the report? The report, some are saying, well, I'm of Paul. He's the founder of the church. I'm of Apollos. He's the most eloquent of them all. And I'm of Cephas. I'm of Peter. He's the blue-collar apostle. All of us gravitating or all of the membership gravitating in one form or another to their most favorite preacher. Do you think that's a problem today? You know, that's my biggest problem with conferences. I love conferences in the, in the very general sense of them, what they do, what they're designed to do, which is typically to just in, just sort of in, in just infuse a, the, the believers, right, with this, this energy and, and newfound strength, if you will. But oftentimes the opposite results in that people begin to idolize the conference speakers and they do such a, they do their job so well that all of a sudden anything they say is the gospel. It's the word of God. And they often, these believers, whether they do it in ignorance, in maturity, or whether they do it because they want to be well, troublemakers. They come and bring that back to the church and they begin to pit other teachers, particularly in the church, against those men. Now, this is something that's been identified in the whole conference circle. Many of the conference speakers have identified this being a problem. 
So I'm not making this up. This is something that you can see. It's something that's been observed. I've experienced it myself when I would have some church members go. And it typically happens with some of the most immature, some of those that may be, maybe they've been Christians for a season, but they're kind of new to the Reformed faith, if you will, and and they come and they want to bring these exciting ideas. Or it's exciting to them. And when the problem is, is when those ideas don't take root in the leadership, then all of a sudden they're against the leadership. And that has caused problems. So we don't need to pick on the Corinthians. We don't need to act as if this is a problem only with them. I would say it's a problem in the American church, a a big problem in the American church. Maybe I know we've talked at times at lunch and in personal conversations and about the ineffectiveness of the American church. Maybe this is one of the main reasons why it's so um, useless in many ways is because it's so partisan, it's so divided. That Christ really isn't the, the not, I mean, it, it's voiced as the head, but it's not practically seen as the head. Practically in the sense of how we live, how we conduct ourselves, how we walk, how we talk, the things we support. As I've said in other sermons, that's not, it's, it's very realistic that many people who start problems in the church do so just over preferences, not even for doctrinal purposes or reasons, for preferences. And, and, there is such an arrogance that comes with some of these people that they're willing to be- just destroy the church because they don't get their way. I know this is painful to hear for some of you, not because I'm saying it, but because we've seen it. We've experienced it. And it's a sad thing to witness And it often takes years and years and years to overcome. You probably have heard many church leaders say, don't put your trust in men. Don't set your eyes on men, not even the best of them. And why? Because they will let you down. They will let you down. I will let you down. And that's why the minister of the gospel sessions, that's why the leadership is to drive Christ to the forefront and to get all of the eyes and the hearts and the minds of the congregation focused on Christ because that's where the minister's focus is too. As Paul said to the young pastor Timothy in those letters written to him, What did Paul say? Even the minister preaches to his own salvation, to the saving of his own soul. That is not just the minister and the people of God. No, the minister is a part of the redeemed people of God. He too needs saving. He too needs sanctifying. He too needs to grow up in Christ. And so we all find ourselves under this headship of Jesus. 
And that's the goal. That's the, that's the focus. And that's where you want to drive one another. That's where husbands help their wives, wives help their husbands, and parents and children, and even children encouraging and, and praising their parents for pointing them to Jesus. So we see this strong exhortation of the Apostle Paul for unity, for unity. And of course, this appeal is done in that ultimate authority of Jesus, where he says, brethren, by the name of the of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. Now, what, what is this this appeal to the authority of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I like what Hodge had to say. Hodge even likened this appeal in Jesus' name to, uh, to the congregation to grow up in their love for Christ. I'm beseeching you, brothers and sisters, in the blessed name of Jesus who saved you from your sins, be of like mind with one another. He says, oh, that you might increase your love for Christ, that you might grow up in him. Listen, beloved, whether it's immorality, whether it's arrogance, whether it's schism, schism is a, is a symptom of a greater problem. The divisions in the church of Corinth were, were signs of a greater problem. Their arrogance, their immaturity, their hatred for one another, their bitterness for one another. When you have, uh, when you have determined not to like someone, you're not going to listen to anything they say. You're not going to listen to anything they say. And in fact, oftentimes, you'll find a place to insert something negative about them in conversations. It's a symptom. It, the, the, the body at Corinth had been infected. And it's demonstrating itself. It, remember the edifice analogy? We can see the cracks in the sheetrock. We can see that the door's not closing in this hallway because the foundation has been replaced that Paul had laid with the truth of the prophets and the apostles, with Jesus as the chief cornerstone, and now we've inserted some of the sophist teaching, these philosophers. We've listened to others that are not of Christ, are not of the Spirit, and they have infected the body of Christ with their lies in their false teaching. And that's the way it happens typically in our churches as well. The headship of Christ is displayed in your life as you yield yourself to the Word of God. And you can't yield yourself to something you don't know, to something you don't understand right? If you don't know the Word of God, you're, you're, you're ripe for being duped. You're, you're, you're ripe for being tricked like Eve. You, you are setting yourself up 
to be an agent possibly for something very destructive in the church body because you don't know if you're right or wrong. And that's what Paul's appeal is to, is that we would be of the what? At the church at Corinth and us to be of the same mind and judgment. And you can't be that unless you're growing up into Christ. And to grow up into Christ is displayed. It is witnessed by the giving ourselves to the word of Christ. Now, I can demonstrate this for you. I mean, I believe the exhortation I'm giving you is biblical. It's consistent with the theme of Corinthians, but we, we don't have to rest there. We can, we can go to the Gospel of John and look at those chapters 14, 15, and 16 where he talks about sending to the church uh, the Spirit. And what is the Spirit going to do with the apostles. Well, it's going to teach them the truth, but they're also going to be in one mind and one heart with the gospel and the truth and the, the ministry so that they may what? Teach it to the people. Matthew 28, go teach them all that I have commanded you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you to the very end of the age. But that's, that's not the only place. Let's, let's turn to John 17. And I think for Hodge and his exhortation that we would, in the name of Christ, for the, for what is, that is, beloved, in this ministerial exhortation, uh, what what Hodge is saying is, for the love of Christ, people, put away your schisms. Put away those things that have divided you. For the love of Jesus Christ, your Lord, put off these things that are of no use in the body. Look at the this high priestly prayer of Jesus. Let's look at um, verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them. And they receive them and truly understand that I came forth from you and believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on the behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. For all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. And notice what he's going to do. You could back down into... Uh, verse 13, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the, in the world so that they may have my joy made full in them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they have not, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And they are not of the world as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. 
Then he talks about the sanctifying of them. He talks about their unity. What's their unity centered in? Well, it's centered in the headship of Christ, but where does that headship take traction in their hearts and minds? From the word of God. From the word given from the Father to the Son, from the Son to the apostles, from the apostles to the people, and to us today. That's this blessed unity that Paul is exhorting them to in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For Christ's sake, beloved, put away your schisms. Repent of them. At least begin to repent of those things that are contrary to the kingdom of Christ, contrary to the Christian ministry. Let me repeat something that I think is very real, a real temptation to the church. It's the nature of the society and the culture that we find ourselves in in our day and time, and that's sort of these internet influencers. These self-proclaimed theologians, apostles, prophets, um, leaders. They don't need ordination. They just create a website. They create a channel, and now they become professional theologians. Now, am I saying that, that everybody on the internet is wrong? That's not what I'm saying. Why, is, why are the young men in the church gravitating to some of these male personalities and influencers outside the church? Some of it is because the church is not doing her job and speaking to cultural issues and problems. And they're looking for answers. They, we talk about a worldview. We talk about a culture. We talk about a, a gospel that's just not relegated to, well, I'm going to wait to die so that I'll go to heaven. That's the gospel. That idea has done nothing but cause problems for generations for, for Christians. We're talking about a, a gospel that comes from the God of heaven that when we prayed this morning that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That gospel, that gospel that says that this world means something and it matters, that your body belongs to God, not just your soul and spirit. And that's his exhortation to forbid immorality. Your body belongs to him. It's not just your soul. And of course, you see the two extremes that existed in Greece. You had the two different extremes. Just like today, you have those who just want to focus on spiritual things, non-physical. Only that which is transcendent. Well, that has its own problems. And then you got those that worship the body. That's why we have all these Greek, Grecian statues and whatnot. And, you know, those have become the model physique well, it's the same way in the church today. There's the worship of the physical body and then there's the worship of the, the intangible, the spirit of man. But beloved, the gospel says both are uniquely important and particular to the headship of Christ who came to this world in flesh and walked among us who ascended to the right hand of the Father bodily to take his seat 
at the Father's right hand whereby he would carry out the ministry of prophet, priest, and king until that day sovereignly chosen for him to come back and to end history as we know it or end the human experience as we know it and to usher in eternity a new dispensation of glory. So this mind, this same mind, what is it? We turn back to Corinthians. Notice this exhortation from the apostle in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that you all agree, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you. Now what is he talking about disagreement? I believe he's talking about Christian ministry, the Christian gospel. All of the truth of the Christian gospel, believe it, own it, make it your conviction, but also not just its its intellectual side, not just the knowledge side, because remember, we are both mental, intellectual, and physical, that we would carry that knowledge out in our lives, call it wisdom. We would make application of it. That we would be of the same mind. That way in the body of Christ, you wouldn't have some of us say, well, I'm not worried about the body. I'm not worried about any of these things. I'm not worried about politics. I'm not worried about culture. I'm not worried about, I'm just, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna wait to go to heaven. Okay. But is that what Christ wants you to do? I don't want you to, listen, don't change your mind for Pastor Stanfield's sake. The exhortation is coming from the apostle in Jesus, in Jesus' name. For Jesus' sake, beloved, be of the same mind. See the gospel in its fullness, in its completeness. And then he goes on. He doesn't just say, he's not just saying be of the same mind. That is these truths. That is one Christ, one church, one baptism, one gospel, one ministry. There are not many roads to heaven. There's one narrow way. There's only one way to the Father, Jesus said, and that is by me. And any religion that does not teach an impeccable, sinless Christ, born of a virgin, the begotten Son of God, walking a life of perfection on this earth and giving up his life for the sacrifice of many, is not going to heaven. Is not going to heaven. Remember the Christian church is the ecclesia. It's the called out ones. We've been called out not to segregate into more groups, but to segregate unto Jesus, unto his doctrine, under his motivation, under his intentions, his purposes. And he goes on and he says, listen, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be made complete of the same mind and of the same judgment. Wow, I could spend a long time here. Now, the same mind is addressing what? The heart, the mind, the, the convictions, the intentions, the motivations. Be of the same motivations, beloved, of the kingdom of Christ. Be like-minded with one another what it is to be a Christian, what it is to have Christian ministry, what it is to have this precious gift of the gospel that no one else has that we would preach it, that we would teach it, that it would be our our food, that it would be our drink. He says, but be of the same judgment. 
That means that we would come to very similar determinations of things. Judgments. That's a problem today. Far too long we've had allowed people to be members of a church that have no Christian convictions whatsoever. They're just decent people. I know I sound like a broken record, but that's okay because the Bible repeats a lot of things too. But beloved, listen, when we take vows to join a church, and I think this this message is good for us as a congregation. We have very young disciples. We have older disciples. We have new disciples. And we all need to what? We need to grow up together. No matter where we are, we have to grow up together in Christ who's the head. But when we take vows to the church, we're taking vows that we would depend and trust upon Jesus Christ alone, that we would we would even depend upon Him to lead and guide us and grow us up in the Word of God, that we would live as becometh of a Christian. But how many churches are filled with people who have no intention to live like a Christian? I mean, it's easy to, to cite some influencer in, in Sunday school. It's easier to walk out from the preaching of the gospel and go, well, it really didn't answer my questions, and so I'm going to lean upon uh, the, the uh, conservative influences of the world for my food and drink. Is the body divided? Is Christ divided? Did Christ, beloved, segregate his church and not completely, and not complete her, and not gift her, and not empower her, and not enrich her, but that she would have to look back to the world for answers? Is that the way it is? Is that the way it's working? That Christ's grace is not sufficient to overcome your mental health, not to overcome some of your spiritual health, and not to overcome some of these other things that we struggle with in personalities and all of these other things. Is Christ's grace not power empowering to you that you have to go to the world and seek their guidance and counsel? Is Christ divided, beloved? I mean, when Christ talked about saving you from this world, was he talking about only halfway? This idea of this completion is the idea of a body. Now, I want you to think about a, a, a torso with no arms. It's incomplete. It's incomplete. It's an incomplete torso. Why? Because we know that the human body is to have two arms. And that if it's going to do things with its hands, it needs arms to attach it to the body so that they could be used of the mind to do certain things. And, and that's the idea. Paul is saying, listen, don't you know that it is in the blessed gospel and in the name of Christ, the teaching of the apostle, that you have to be of the same mind and of the same judgment and be made complete in this world? So it's not having, it's not addressing perfection, sinless perfection. That's not what it's addressing. It's addressing usefulness. 
But the church can never be used, beloved, properly when it keeps looking back, half one foot in the church, another foot into the world looking for answers. You know, when I envision myself preaching these sermons, I'm always calm. Isn't that something? I'm always real even kill calm. I mean, that's how I envision it. It just doesn't end that way. Now, beloved, we need to be careful about where we go to find our answers. We need to be careful. And we need to be conscious of the fact that our, the goal of the Christian ministry and of Christian salvation is to grow us up into the head, which is Christ Jesus. Paul wrote that in Ephesians 4. It's interesting. Do you think Paul wrote, now this is speculation on my part, that some of the problems at Corinth moved Paul to be real clear when he addressed the doctrine of the church in Ephesus? Could be. Could be. So let me give you, beloved, four things that demonstrate from the text that the sin of schism is a very great sin. Four. As we close this message. <clears throat> I've already given you two of them. And that is, first of all, because it's from the Apostle Paul. He's their father. That's what he says. I am your father. I, I, I came to you and I preached Christ. I preached the gospel. I formed you as it were. I was a father to you. That carries weight. We don't know of any minister in Corinth. You know, that's interesting. We, we read first and second Corinthians and we have no minister, no elder. So we don't know if they weren't able to find one or that I don't know the situation. But it, but remember, because of what Paul says, he had received reports and they had, these reports were of such a, a nature and magnitude that Paul said, I need to address my spiritual children. I need to come to them. They'll listen to me. And that's what he's hoping for. Of course, when they heard about it, it's very possible that some of these, these schismatics then begin pitting Paul against some of these super apostles, and we'll get to all of that. The second thing is certainly the authority that's found in Christ. He's the head of the church. Beloved, I want you to think, I mean, why do you think the analogy of a house and a foundation is important? If you have a, a certain pattern of a foundation... Can you build anything on it? You can say, well, I don't like that foundation. I'm just going to let this wall hang over 10 feet. I'm going to let this wall step in 10 feet. I'm not worried about those pillars and the weight bearing of the roof. I don't want that column there. That's in the way. I'm going to put the column over here. Guess what you're going to, what kind of problem? What happens when men form the church in their own image? It's not a church. It's a club. That's what you call a club. A lot of clubs. It's not a church. A church is where the membership is being conformed into the head, who, 
Who is Jesus? The third one. You know, in all the sins that are going on at Corinth, which one did Paul pick first to address? The one on schism. Even over immorality. Even over relationships, abuses with one another, suing one another. Even over the abuse of the Lord's Supper. Which one does Paul deal with first in the order of priority? Schism. Why? Well, I'm going to offer just this one. How can they walk together unless they be in agreement? How can you deal with the sin of immorality in a congregation where some think sin, the immorality is fine? You know, that's, my, that's a weakness of what we call independent churches. When they bring a discipline case to the body and they say, oh no, this is the church body that needs to dis, who needs to vote on whether or not this person excommunicated for adultery. And some say, well, hey, oh, Billy didn't mean it. And, and so 51% vote to keep Billy in church. Is that a church? Is that church functioning like a Christian church? Of one mind, one heart, one intention, one gospel, one faith? No. Now Paul even says, I've heard of this report of this immorality and therefore I have made a judgment that he be cast out of the church. Beloved, if the church is going to function, if the church is going to be useful, if the church is going to, to display the, the glory and the, the, the magnificence and the wisdom of Christ in this world and all of these graces and, and it's going to be salt and light and, and the gospel is going to be preached and we need to be like-minded when we address these other sins, these other things that are possibly going to infiltrate the church. I mean, you're, look how Look how fractured the church is even today with all of the communism and all of, of the woke agenda and all. I mean, you, you've got, there's a, there's numerous ways that Satan has divided the church. And we need to be like-minded on these matters. But how can they walk together unless they be in agreement? So, beloved, the heinousness of schism is set forth as the priority of these issues that we're going on in Corinth, and we need to be of one mind and one heart, one judgment. And then the last reason, so this is the fourth one. You know the first two, I just gave you the third one. What's the fourth one? It's the, it's the scope, it's the amount of words Paul has given to this sin of schism. The first four chapters are nothing but arguments addressing and destroying the sin of schism. The whole first four chapters of Corinthians is solely given to destroying this sin. Now, it mentions, it's sprinkled throughout the rest of the letter, but no other sin is given that many chapters in this book. So, beloved, I set before you the importance of watching over your mind, your heart, along with your brothers and sisters. And we as a session, 
of like-mindedness, of ministry, of gospel. Now, beloved, if we find ourselves in a form of schism, we need to repent today. We need to repent today and seek forgiveness of Christ. It's offensive to him. And, and we need to thank him that it's not broken out into anything, but that it remains private at this point, but that we need to ask his forgiveness. We need the grace to overcome it. We need to grow up in, in, in grace, but also that grace that unifies each from, it unifies the body that connects one to another. And I hope I've demonstrated to you, beloved, the heinousness of schism. We'll talk more about it in the next several Sundays as we work through these five chapters. But verse 10, it, it sets the foundation for the remaining five arguments against schism. Let's pray. Now, blessed Lord, we do, we thank you that you have taken the time to give us a complete word, a complete gospel in your, in your scriptures. Lord, there's nothing lacking. Lord, there's nothing that we need that we can't find there as it comes to the Christian life, the Christian ministry, Christian motivations, Christian knowledge, wisdom, Lord. Everything we need to, to grow up and live out a Christian worldview has been given to us either in the power and influence of the Spirit and in the revelation of your Word. And so, Lord, help us to... Embrace that, help us to believe that, and help us to live that out, Lord, going forward from today. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved, we